Before we read, let me just open us in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for this time tonight to gather around your word, to discuss you, to consider uh, your powerful salvation. Uh, Would you help us to be warmed, to be encouraged, and to be strengthened by uh, the reading of your word, its study, uh, and its application into our hearts. pray this in your name. Amen. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 reads, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So this text in 1 Timothy takes us to Paul's conversion story, Paul's own testimony. It reveals to us much about his own, let's say, theological understanding of what happened to him on the road to Damascus and subsequent to that. And you might find it uh, strange for Paul to, at this point in his letter, divert from his, his discourse about the false teachers and then pivot to his own conversion story. But I pray that you'll find that it all makes sense when we're wrapped up with our, our following of Paul's argument by the end of the time tonight. Uh, the, the title of our study this evening is Born into the Family. Born into the Family. And we've been discussing the church, specifically the healthy church, as something that is most analogous to a human family. The human family represents the pattern or the paradigm off which a church is based. So you have spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers. And as we've seen with Paul's relationship to Timothy, he's, he's saying he is his father in some sense because he calls Timothy his true-born son or his genuine child of the faith. And he's just finished talking about false teachers, threats to that family. And now he's going to talk about how one is born into this family. If the church is a family, how does one enter into its embrace? How does one become engrafted into the family? Well, part of this is, has to do with the gospel itself. And I think you'll find that, that Paul's logic is actually pretty seamless for defending, in this case, the gospel and all that the gospel accomplishes. If you'll remember, last week we concluded in verse 11, where Paul says that he is the one who has been entrusted with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. So because Paul has been entrusted with the gospel, that informs Paul's own defense of and attachment to the gospel and its defense against false teaching. And then we might ask the question, why is it that the gospel is worth defending? Why is it that the gospel is worth breaking fellowship over? What is it about the gospel that is worth uh, defending and, and, and dying for? What is it about it? You might have theological basis for, for what, is, what, it, what is the gospel for, what, why is it worth defending. Paul has a theological defense for why the gospel is worth defending, but he also has, we might say, an aesthetic defense of it. It's a, it's a beautiful truth to hold on to, and thus it is worth defending. 
And to show you just how beautiful the gospel is, he, he uses himself as exhibit A to show you that the gospel isn't just some theological treatise out in the world. It's actually the power to save humans in their most decrepit state and restore them back to a beautiful relationship with their savior and with one another in community and fellowship. So why is it that Paul wants Timothy to defend the gospel? Well, first, he wants Timothy to defend the gospel because the gospel is the only solution, it is the only power to save someone from their sin. This could be contrasted with the false teachers who we've seen uh, are, are speculators, they are theologians, they wax eloquent, but they don't actually accomplish change or edification in the life of those who they teach. In contrast with that, the gospel actually changes people's lives. If you just look at the example of Paul, for example, uh, in verse 12, you'll see that he, he starts off with a thanks. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. So Paul takes it as a great honor to be in service of Christ. But why is it that Paul is so honored by this? Because he was formerly the kind of person who actually he would have been in the, in the business of saving. He says in verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. So his self-description pedigree actually maps well onto the list of sins that he's finished telling us about in verses 8 through 11. Those who are blasphemers, profaners, those who violate God's law. Paul's saying, I was formerly right there. But what the gospel does is it actually takes Paul from the category of violator of God's law and moves him into family member and obedient to God's law. The gospel actually changes trajectory for Paul. So though, though Paul formerly could have been adequately described as a very robust and uh, experienced sinner, one who was sinning in every way possible, a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, yet he received mercy from God. You see this also in verse 16 where Paul says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul is contrasting his deservedness of sin with the mercy that he receives in Christ Jesus. And the, the thing that moves the needle for Paul is the gospel. It is, the, it is the Christ actually saving sinners unto himself. So the gospel is the solution to the rebellion that we saw in verses 8 through 11. We talked about this last week. The gospel is the solution to the condemnation brought on by the law. And the gospel is the only solution to that problem. There is no therapeutic uh, psychosomatic or relational, economic, educational solution to the problem of sinfulness in the human heart. The only antidote to a sinful human heart is a restored human heart by the power of God's grace. If you go out into the world and you ask them the question, what is it that, would it, that it would take to move society from where it is now, where people murder each other, where people exploit one another, where people do all kinds of wickedness to one another, how, what do you need to do to move a society from that level of wickedness and brokenness into a utopian society? What would it take? Well, in some sense, the, the, the Bible offers us a picture of what a utopian society looks like in glory in the new heavens and the new earth. And it says the difference between the modern society and the utopian society, the one that is perfect and glorious in every way, is that the modern society is corrupted by sin and the utopian society won't be. It will have this, the, a new hearts, new people. It will be a new creation of God's own power. That is different than every other solution that the world offers. The world offers economic solutions. If we all distributed resources evenly, then we would have a utopian experience. 
If the world really held people responsible for their sin and trained people of the responsibilities of their actions, then people would cease to sin and, and become more responsible. Then we'd have this utopian experience. The, the problem is none of those things actually address the problem of sin. When you look at the world, everyone recognizes there's problems, something wrong with the world. But the law and the gospel combine to tell us what is, the, what is the source of the problem that we see, not just that there is a problem, and then what is the solution to the problem, namely Christ Jesus himself atoning for sin and resurrecting us to a new life. That's different than, uh, well, people are un uneducated, they need to be more educated, or people don't know how to, they're not really in touch with themselves, they need to be more in touch with themselves. These kinds of solutions that, that put the problem and the solution in the human person as a self-sufficient unit of saving. Paul's gospel actually tells us that he is in himself not sufficient for, for the whole saving process. And this is the second reason why Paul is, is going to defend the gospel, not just that it's the only solution to sin, but that it is actually a beautiful solution to sin. It, it, let's, say, let's say the gospel is among many solutions. What, what does the gospel have that stands out against the rest? Well, the gospel is the only solution that's beautiful in its administration. It actually offers hope and redemption and life on the other end of condemnation. Every other solution puts the burden on you to be different, do better, try harder, be more sufficient, be more disciplined. The gospel is a solution that goes alien to you and puts a different kind of righteousness within you. This is where Paul's words, his, his probably most misunderstood words in this text come in, where he says in, in verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, he says, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, many would take this, and, and I, would, I would not fault you for taking it this way, because on a cursory reading, it seems as though Paul is saying the reason he receives mercy is because he was actually innocent of all charges, because he acted without his own knowledge. He acted ignorantly in unbelief. Therefore, God showed mercy to him. But the contrast we need to be a little bit more sensitive to, listen a little bit more closely. Paul's not saying that because he acted in unbelief and in ignorance, he's off the hook for sin. He's saying, because he acted ignorantly and in unbelief, his only solution to sin was the mercy of God. God could not have waited for Paul to come to his senses and then for Paul to turn to God and say, I've, I've recognized that I've acted wickedly. Would you please help me out of this mess? Or for Paul to come to his senses and say, you know what, I'm going to do better tomorrow. Paul's whole point is, but I received mercy, or we might say it this way, but I, I had to receive mercy from God because I was acting ignorantly in unbelief. There, there was no solution within me to stop my course of action. There was no, there was no I, I was not going to come to my senses apart from God's divine intervention. If God had not moved to save me from my ignorance and save me from my unbelief, I would have continued along that path. This is very different than what we, what we typically think about when we think about, well, if, as long as you show people how wicked they are, then they'll wake up one day. The, the point of scripture all over the place, Romans chapter 1, here in the text of 1 Timothy, Ephesians chapter 1, and Ephesians chapter 2, is that it's not just that people sin and engage with sin as rational creatures, it's that sin actually corrupts the human mind to such a point where humans no longer think rationally when they're engaging in sin. Humans, humans no longer make good decisions when they're engaging in sinful behavior. Paul's point here is not that he didn't cognitively know differently, his point is that he was blind in his sin. He was in a blind sin rage, and thus he acts ignorantly and in unbelief. But it is not as though he did not have enough learning. He had plenty of learning. His problem was that he was a sinner who needed rescuing from God, mercy from God. 
So uh, we might say it this way, the reason you and I receive mercy is not because one day we're going to come to our senses. The reason we receive mercy is because we too act ignorantly and in unbelief. If you have been rescued from your sin by God's grace, it's not because you merited that saving. It's because, well, you acted ignorantly and in unbelief. And if God did not show mercy to you, uh, you would not have been saved. You would not have changed direct, uh, trajectory on your own. And he, he confirms this even further in verse 14, where he says, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The emphasis here is not on Paul. The emphasis here is on God's mercy, where he says that it is his grace, his mercy that overflows into the life of Paul. And Jesus is the vehicle for that overflow of mercy. And then Paul lest we think that this is Paul's experience alone and not ours also, Paul makes a universal truth statement found in verse 15, a wonderful phrase. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So it is not as though uh, Christ Jesus just saves Paul and we're to look to Paul as some kind of inspiring example. Christ Jesus saves Paul as exhibit A of how he saves all sinners from their sin. Christ Jesus actually came into the world for this purpose, that he would rescue sinners. He came into the world to save sinners. And Paul's saying, if he can save me, the foremost of sinners, he can save all the rest of you as well. What an encouragement this would be to Timothy to know that the gospel he's defending is not only the solution to sin, it's also a beautiful solution to sin. It's a, it's a lovely solve to the problem of human brokenness. It actually deals with the problem of corruption and it offers an opportunity of hope and resurrection life. But the gospel is, is not just something worth defending for, for, these, for these reasons that humans have something to gain from it, although there's, there's much to commend to us in that sense. But the gospel is also the means by which God is most glorified. The gospel has a God-glorifying purpose or aim in its ministry. So Paul in verse 16 again says, but I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. And then he terminates this whole reflection of God saving him on a hymn. And there's no better way, there's no more fitting way to conclude reflecting on the gospel and its salvation than to respond in worship for the God who provides that salvation. And Paul, although he is writing a letter and defending against false teaching, he cannot help but insert a, a hymn and a, a wonderful song of God's saving work and God's magnificence and his glory on display in this kind of salvation. Verse 17, to the king of the ages or to the king eternal, immortal and invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul writes this broad reflection on the glory of God, a broad reflection on his attributes, which he might, we might say, Paul finds the apex of these attributes, the concrete incarnation of these attributes in Christ Jesus himself and the saving of sinners unto himself. That when we talk about the king of the ages, the God eternal, one of the things we're, we're reflecting on is the fact that we would not know God if God did not reveal himself to us. So we can, we can say we know God of the ages, not because we've found out things about God, but God has actually told us about himself in this way. He's immortal, he's invisible, he's the only God, and it is for all these reasons that he was our only hope, he's the only solution, he's the only one transcendent above humanity, that we can give him honor and glory forever and ever, because if these things are all true about God, all these attributes are true, 
then what that means is in his rescuing of sinners unto himself, he does something that he does not have to do. He's not dependent on his creation to save them. He's not, he doesn't owe us anything in his saving of us. In fact, all of these attributes that Paul lists of God show how non-dependent God is on his human creatures, and thus it magnifies God's loving compassion, mercy, and grace poured out in the saving of those creatures unto himself. Because God did not have to come down from his habitation and, and save us unto himself. God, God did not owe us anything in that sense. He was not dependent on us in that sense, which further serves to magnify how marvelous and gracious it is that he actually does all those things. Because then we conclude he didn't do it out of necessity or out of obligation, but he does it purely motivated out of love, purely motivated out of compassion. That he, when he reveals himself to us as this all-wise, immortal God, doesn't do so to tell us how different we are from him, but actually to tell us, maybe to a greater degree, how, how glorious his salvation is. So we can turn to him in his saving of us through Christ Jesus, and we can say, not only did he not owe us anything, there, there's no explanation for this beyond his love for his creatures. When you and I do a favor for someone else, when we, when we save them, when we rescue them, even with our most benevolent intentions, we often get something out of it. Whether it's some kind of an IOU in the future, or some kind of a relational boost, or uh, if you're very famous and you help enough people, you actually get a boost to your own ego and thus your own brand goes up. God gains none of those benefits when he helps sinners. God, God has no uh, PR person who's out there trying to save face with him. God does these things purely out of his benevolence, purely out of his goodwill. And thus, when we, when we reflect back on Paul's self-description of his sin, the fact that he's a blasphemer and a persecutor, all we should conclude is that, therefore, he's deserving of death for his violation of a holy, immortal, and wise God. But instead, God shows him mercy. God shows him grace and compassion in that moment of rebellion. And then Paul says, and actually, that's actually the kind of business that God's in. Because it's not just that he saves me from my sin. Uh, this saying is trustworthy that he uh, came into the world for this purpose, to save sinners. This is what we see in, in John 3.16, that God so loved the world in this way that he sent his son into the world. Not to condemn the world, but that in him the world might have life. The world might actually be saved through the sending of his son. This is summarized here when Paul says that Jesus' whole business of coming into the world was to save sinners. The purpose of Jesus coming into the world was to give us the gospel, to give us this message of hope and, and uh, restoration and redemption. And therefore, the gospel is worth defending. It is the sole reason that Jesus came into this earth, embodied a human form, died on the cross, and resurrected the newness of life. It, the sole reason he did that was to save sinners from their sin. And so, uh, we ought to defend the gospel that he paid with his life for, that he raised the newness of life to, to offer us that newness of life. We ought to defend that with, with everything we've got. There, there's nothing more beautiful, more lovely, more concrete than that kind of redemption. And this uh, could be sharply contrasted with what the false teachers offer, because they offer a message that actually isn't worth defending. Endless speculation, endless genealogies, endless kind of debates about nothing. Not the kind of thing you're going to lay down your life for. Not the kind of thing you would go to the gallows for. Not the kind of thing you would go to prison for life trying to put forward. 
But Paul actually finds it worth going to prison for life to share the gospel with an unbelieving world. You and I should find it worth losing our jobs to hold fast to the truth of the gospel. We should, we should find it worth losing friendships and relationships to hold fast to the truth of the gospel. We should find it worth breaking fellowship, if need be, to hold fast to the truth of the gospel. It is the thing which we ought to live and die to defend. The gospel is the most glorious thing that God ever did, and it's also the thing that we ought to hold most dearly of all of God's actions. His creation is beautiful and marvelous. Yes, it is. But his gospel is his peak display of glory. In John's gospel, he tells us that God put his glory on display and we have seen his glory and we have beheld the glory of the only God in Jesus Christ. And God's glory is most put on display in the gospel of John at the crucifixion, where God's glory is fully mag manifested, fully magnified on that cross. We often don't think about it like that. We think about the gospel as maybe a tack on to many other things that God, God has done. And in this world, Jesus, many people have opinions about Jesus, what he is, what he came to do. Paul tells us in verse 15, this is why Jesus came into the world. So any answer that tells us why did Jesus come that doesn't get to, to save sinners from their sin is a short answer. It's an insufficient answer for why Jesus came into the world. He came, yes, and he gave us great moral insights and teachings, but he did not come for that reason. He came for the reason to save sinners unto himself. Jesus, yes, came to show us how we ought to love one another, how we ought to treat one another, and how we ought to respect one another as people. And yet, his, his primary purpose was to save sinners from their sin. Many people want to latch on to minor aspects of why Jesus came, and, and, not, and they miss the major aspect of why he came, which is to save sinners unto himself. The reason is because no one wants to admit that sinners even exist in the world and that they need saving. But if they didn't, don't exist and they don't need saving, then Paul says there's no purpose for Jesus even having come. And you should say that too. When you're talking to someone and you say, and you say why did Jesus come or... Or what is this that you, you worship Jesus? What is the purpose of him in the world? You, you would say the purpose of Jesus in the world is to save sinners from their sin. That, that's his whole mission. And so any person who wants to have a take on Jesus that falls short of that standard has an insufficient take. And you just take them to 1 Timothy 3.15, where Paul doubles down before he says the statement, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of absolute, full, and unadulterated acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. This is the thesis of Jesus' mission and ministry. The gospel is worth defending, not only because it's powerful to save us, not only because it's beautiful in every aspect, not only because it's God-glorifying, but also because, well, it's, it, is, it is the thing that Jesus came to die for. It is, it is his mission. And if Jesus is willing to die for his mission, we should be willing to die to propagate that message and preserve that message and defend that message. Christians for thousands of years have found it worth dying for, Christians today even find it worth dying for. We should find it worth dying for. And we should be willing to lay down our lives to preserve this message at all costs. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this time together to gather around your word, to hear about your glorious truth, to hear about your magnificent display of grace in your Son, whom you sent to make people right with you. Lord, we thank you for this gift, this unimaginable demonstration of love and mercy. And we pray that we would not soon forget the glorious and amazing display of love that was manifested on that cross. We thank you for your grace. 
which exists to save sinners unto yourself. And we pray that we would be faithful stewards of this truth. We pray this in your name. Amen.